The scripture reading today is from Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6 and 15 through 23. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus said, do not judge so that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you make, you will be judged. And the measure you give will be the measure you get. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorns or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into fire. Thus you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many deeds of power in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you evildoers. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow before God in prayer. Let us pray. Almighty God, bring peace and stillness to our hearts. Clear the clutter of this past week and all the thoughts about the week to come and help us to know that you long to meet with us and that the word you proclaim through the reading of Holy Scripture and the proclamation of the word is a word that you want to use to touch our lives and to accomplish your will and your purpose, even through us as individuals and as a congregation together. So fulfill the promise of your word in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, we come to the end of the series of sermons that I've been preaching for about six months now on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. I've been following this series quite deliberately for this extended period of time because back in the fall, I prayed about what I'd want to preach about, what I want to speak about, what I would love for folks to remember in the last year of my preaching here at National. And the central teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is obviously what came to mind. So we could have gone to other teaching of Jesus in the parable and parables and elsewhere in the Gospels, but this body of teaching, three chapters, five, six, and seven of Matthew, is so central to understanding Jesus' life and ministry that I wanted us to spend a great deal of time thinking about it together, and I hope that some of it, or the reading of these chapters, will permanently be influenced by some of the thoughts that have been shared in this time. I also, along the way, wanted to focus on the death of Jesus. The Apostle Paul says that the preaching of Christ and Christ crucified was central to his ministry. So when we move into the season of Lent, there will be a number of sermons that focus on the death of our Lord Jesus Christ and the significance of his death before we get to Easter 
and to the resurrection. But today, the last sermon on the Sermon on the Mount, and a question about the end of the sermon, the last words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. How does Jesus end the Sermon on the Mount? For those gathered to listen to him, or those reading the gospel, as if they were in Jesus' presence and he is there on the mount and he's preaching, what were his final words and admonitions? What is it he wanted people to remember at the end? At the end of any message, somebody usually says, this is what I want you to remember, so these words are critical. What was the last thing that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? I want us to focus on that, but I actually want us to go right back to the beginning to begin with, because in any sermon or message, the beginning and the end often tie together, and that's very much the case when it comes to Jesus. Some of you do remember how the beginning begins, but let me remind you about that. In Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount, he begins with nine statements that we call the Beatitudes, statements about happiness or blessedness, even in tough times. Not just statements about happiness or blessedness, but happiness or blessedness, divine happiness or blessedness, even in tough times. It's as if Jesus says right at the opening of the Sermon on the Mount, even when you feel crushed or poor in spirit, as no doubt many are feeling in Ukraine just now, even when you weep and when you mourn, even when you are persecuted for what is right or for my sake, there is still reason for hope. The future still belongs to God. In the Beatitudes, the future tense is, in fact, absolutely everywhere. You will be comforted, says Jesus. We focus on the comfort, and we need to, but it's the future. You will be. You really will be. This is assured. You will inherit the earth. It doesn't look like it just now, but you will. This is absolutely assured. You will be satisfied. No satisfaction at the moment that I can think of, but yes, you will, says Jesus. He promises this, and you will see God. The God who is invisible, immortal, only wise, but far off. No, we will see God. So trust me, says Jesus in the Beatitudes. Trust me, even if the present is not pleasant. And in thinking this way, it's really important for us to see, especially at this moment in history, that our Lord Jesus is not just gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He is, but he's not naive. He is not naive about human nature and the human predicament and the world within which we live and within which we are to be his faithful followers. He embraces the biblical view that human beings are neither wholly good nor wholly evil. Both goodness and evil to Jesus are very real. Let me put it like this. For Jesus, as in all of Scripture, two things are held in balance when it comes to understanding human nature. The first is from Genesis. We are made in the image of God. The potential for good is simply enormous in our lives, in any human life made in the image of God. But all of us, without exception... Genesis begins this, and the message goes on through all of Scripture, have sinned. We have broken the tie between God, the one who made us and gave us life and who continually nourishes our lives. We have fallen short of the glory of God so that the potential for evil 
is just as real as the potential for good, unrestrained evil. And that potential is there in every single one of us and is often only held back by convention or by fear or by the grace of God until from time to time, as we have seen recently, all hell breaks loose, whether in nations or in leaders or in our places of work or in our homes or sometimes in the depth of our own lives. And good people get get caught up in terrible evil. Sometimes we're trampled down by evil. Sometimes we are corrupted by evil. And sometimes, blessedly, we triumph even in the midst of evil. But my point is this, that the Jesus who speaks at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount is not naive. There will be sadness and mourning. There will be persecution and suffering There will be the need for courageous peacemakers as long as the world endures. Yet, in the midst of this, the good news is that we have work to do for God and with God. And God does not want us to live in despair, but to be empowered by the happiness that he alone can give and the hope that he alone can give and that we must grasp and that we must lay hold of. And that is our calling, that the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount stretches forth to each one of us. So that's there in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, but it's also there as Jesus wraps up the sermon in the seventh chapter of Matthew's Gospel. Jesus deliberately draws our attention back as he closes the message to the ambiguities of life to the power of goodness and to the power of evil. In particular, the power of evil comes into the forefront of his message when he draws the attention of his readers to the deceptive power of self-delusion and to the stormy spiritual weather that all of us should expect in life. There's going to be rain. There's going to be flood. There's going to be wind, says Jesus. Spiritually speaking, get yourself ready for that. And In the midst of that, he says, you have choices to make, whether to listen to me and all that I've said or not. We hear it, and it doesn't mean a thing. We hear it, and it changes everything. We have choices to make on that, says Jesus, and he drills home the importance of those choices. Listen again to some words that you've already heard in the scripture reading, and then to uh, verses which come right at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. So in your bulletin, you'll see these words. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who acts on or does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many deeds of power in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you evildoers. This is the appearance of religiosity and of Christian faith, but there's no depth to it. There's no knowledge of God. There's no relationship with God in the midst of that. And these fearsome words that Jesus speaks, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you evildoers. That should shake us up. And then finally, Jesus says these words, and this is the real closure. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. 
The rains fell and it will fall. The floods came and they will come. And the winds blew and they will blow and beat on that house, but it did not fall. Solid as a rock. The kind of happiness that Jesus wants for us because it has been founded on the rock. The teaching of Jesus' word. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. In other words, the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount is gracious to us. He wants the best for us. He wants us to live in hope. He wants us to find a happiness that nothing and no one can take away in life. But there is no room in his teaching for soft peddling. And he ends with a strong word to be committed in our discipleship to him and to make some real choices to find the path that he has for us through thorny ways. This was the message, among other messages, of the German theologian and martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who began World War II, more or less as a Christian pacifist, but in the face of the evil perpetrated by Hitler, he joined a plot towards the end of the war to assassinate Hitler. This was a plot that ultimately failed and that led to Bonhoeffer's own death. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he speaks about the grace and the kindness of Christ. But he also speaks about the abuse of this kindness, which he calls cheap grace. Cheap grace, costly grace. Listen. Cheap grace, says Bonhoeffer, is the deadly enemy of our church. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. On the other hand, costly grace is the gospel, the good news, which must be sought again and again and again. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs us our life. And it is grace because it gives us the only true life, the life that is to be found in Jesus. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought with a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. So in the last section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks about the cost of discipleship, that we're going to be followers of Jesus not in the best of circumstances, though once in a while that may be the case, but in all kinds of circumstances. The Christian life he speaks about is a life in which there are going to be storms and wind and rain and floods. He speaks about the power of our own self-deception and delusion when he says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, but will never enter the kingdom of heaven. There's nothing real beneath the surface. He speaks about entering the kingdom of God by a narrow door. We'll come back to this again Next week, enter by the narrow door, says Jesus, for the gate is wide that leads to destruction. He speaks about the reality of evil in people's lives, some of whom 
And this is Jesus, some of whom he calls false prophets, some he calls dogs, some he calls swine. Don't give dogs what is holy or throw your pearls before swine. Beware of false prophets, he says, in sheep's clothing. And this is the context. This is the context of some of Jesus' most famous words that we find in the Sermon on the Mount as we move towards the end of what Jesus has to say. Jesus' words about judging. Judge not, he says, that you be not judged. Judge not, that you be not judged. So let's put these words in the context of what I have described as the beginning and the end and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is not calling us, as some people think. He is not calling us never to be discerning or realistic about the world or people. He is not calling us just to be Pollyannas. He is not calling us to shrug off people who do whatever they like and destroy all kinds of people and institutions along the way. He is not calling us to be silent when the time comes to speak up. He is not calling us to be naive. But what he is saying to us is something like this, that in a world that is at times truly tough, in a world in which sin and evil are very real, and our own self-deception can rise up at the most awkward and inappropriate moments, in a world in which some people are going to let you down and stand in your way and treat you with prejudice and stab you in the back, you need to step back just a little bit and look at yourself first. Not that you don't act in the face of these things, but says Jesus, business number one is always, always to bring our lives under the lordship of God made known in Jesus Christ. That's always the first step, even in this world as it really is. We are to be deadly serious about our own discipleship and who it is we are committed to in this world. Even in this real world in which we live. We are to remember, says Jesus, that one day all of us will stand before the judgment seat of God to answer for the stewardship of the life entrusted to each of us. Says Jesus, with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged too. First, he says, Take the log out of your own eye when everything in you wants to do it for somebody else. And then and only then, after you've focused on yourself, you will see clearly, you will get things in perspective to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Yourself first, says Jesus, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Yourself first. Only then, when you have committed yourself to me, recommitted yourself to me, examined your heart and your soul, do you pay attention to others? And at times we must pay attention to others. We have to focus on the real world around about us. But first, deal with yourself. This is not easy. When there is real evil and when people do terrible things in the world, it is not easy to say, I must start here. I must withdraw first and go to God first. 
And one of the stories in the scripture which show how hard this is, is one of my favorite stories, and it comes at the end of John's gospel. And it's about the leader of Jesus' disciples who needs to focus on himself after he has let Jesus down, but finds it oh so hard to do this. I don't know if you remember the story, but it's after Jesus is crucified and risen. And he returns to Galilee, where his followers, those who have let him down when he was in his moment of need, are, are fishing. They've been fishing all night. And these are people whom Jesus really should condemn because they have let him down at the worst of all possible moments. But he doesn't do that, and he doesn't even do it to Simon Peter, who says to people, I've never known, known the man, denies him three times before the cock crows. So Simon Peter, the leader of the disciples, is there with the others. And Jesus comes up to them, and it must have been this awesome moment where Jesus had every right to say whatever it was on his mind for the way that they had treated him. Jesus speaks, though, to Simon Peter, and he does not judge him. Three times he asked Simon Peter to dig deep into his own heart. Do you love me? He says to Simon Peter, do you love me? He says, do you love me? Do you, do you, do you? Examine your soul, Simon Peter. And Simon Peter responds, I think, viscerally as he normally did. Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Yes, 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 you know I love you. And three times, Jesus, instead of condemning him, calls him into his service, says, I want you back. I want you back. I want you back in my service, even if it's costly. And he gives him a hint of the suffering that will lie ahead of Peter if he joins Jesus' gang again. It's an incredible moment of grace and of kindness and of commitment that Jesus calls Simon Peter to at that moment. And Peter should be saying, oh, wow, what a moment. I expected you to condemn me, but you didn't. Help me examine myself as you want me to examine myself and to follow as I have never followed before. Give me help to do this. He should have been focusing on himself at that moment in the right kind of a way. But he doesn't do this. And this is where the Gospels are so very human and tell the human story so perfectly. Instead, having received the grace of God and the challenge of God through Jesus, he immediately turns to another disciple who is known as the one that Jesus loves. And this is what we read in verse 20 of John 21. Peter turned after this incredible moment of grace and challenge. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. He was the one who had reclined next to Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? Lord, what about him? Jesus said to Simon Peter, if it is my will that he remain alive until I come, if I do a great miracle with him and maybe I'm not coming for a while and he lives for a hundred years or a thousand years, what is that to you, Simon Peter? In other words, Peter, what happens to him is none of your business. It is just none of your business. He serves me. Your business, says Jesus, is to follow me. And the Greek is more explicit than the English. You follow me. 
You follow me. And that's our business, too. That's our business, too. Make no mistake about it. The Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount is not naive. He knew more than any of us the power of evil in the world that was going to lead to his death and his crucifixion. He knows the sin and the weakness in the world within our own lives and in the world around about us. And in the face of this, he promises us a happiness and a joy that nobody else can give to us if we stay close to him, if we revel in his grace and his mercy, if we continue to be stunned by his call into his service. And as we commit ourselves unreservedly to listen in the midst of all the voices in the media out there to his voice above every other voice, and then to say, Lord, forbid it that I should hear and not do. Lord, help me to be a hearer and a doer. That's where our happiness lies. That's where our effectiveness lies. And as Jesus points out in the passage we read, that's where our fruitfulness lies, bearing fruit for Jesus Christ, no matter what the world looks like. Sure, there are going to be times when others may need our opinions, times when others may need our criticism, times when they may even need our judgment and our restraint the real world out there. But even if that's the case, first says Jesus, that's not your first item of business. First item of business, and don't deflect it, is right here. Let's pray. Holy God, come to us, we pray. Help us to know how best to serve you faithfully in this real world in which Jesus lived and suffered and died and into which he calls us as his servants, saying, follow me. Hear our prayer that we may follow. Amen.